0: taking away racial injustice right some of the most successful people in our culture have been people who have come in as refugees and who have been who have been helped by NGOs like CWS so that's to me that's where the the game is right the game is in the streets not so much even in the classrooms
1: this is a podcast called walk talk listen Okay. Good day, everybody. Uh, this is yet another uh, episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, who will introduce himself. Marshall, please go ahead.
0: Well, thank you, Maurice. This is Marshall Teplansky. Uh It has been my honor to have been a past board member of CWS. Uh, my background, in addition to having been on the board, is um, I've had a career in business having worked in technology companies, as well as advertising agencies, uh, focusing on uh, bringing new products to life, especially in the technology area. Um, And uh, one of my core areas is uh, artificial intelligence and how AI is being used to help businesses be more productive, hopefully not in a scary way, Mm -hmm. but um, uh, to be able to help bring more opportunities to people. uh, about five years ago, I joined the faculty at Chapman University in Orange, California, and I'm a professor there uh, focusing on management science. So I teach new product development and marketing analytics and um, uh, topics that are related to that. And uh, it's also been my pleasure to have joined Maurice on his 100-mile walks yes, and uh, have been a contributor to it and actually have my students join us when he did it in Southern California, we Mm -hmm. we did a a day here in Orange County. And I had the students from my classes join. And it was really just a wonderful experience to walk through uh, uh, the town of Anaheim and Orange and, uh, and see how students were able to kind of rally uh, behind something that's bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And that was really a tremendous joy. Yeah. No, and and it was so it was was
1: uh, and and luckily you know the the weather was was gorgeous as well, which is always helpful. Um, hey, M- Marshall, to go to go back to artificial intelligence. So, how how did you tell us? How did you get into that? Because I'm intrigued with uh,
0: that particular. Well, it's it, it, interesting. Uh, my background, having been in marketing, um, led me to do a lot of marketing research in my life. And um, one of the things I noticed is that when you did surveys with people, um, they, they just didn't usually tell you the truth. You could, it was getting harder and harder to actually get people to sit down and take a survey to begin with. But then what they would tell you was not necessarily a real reflection of, of what their intent was. So um, uh, some friends of mine approached me with a new technology. This was back in like 2007 um where what they would do is look at millions of comments that were being posted on social media at the time it was mostly twitter and blogs of course now it's it's you know everything but um what we did was found a way to use ai to identify comments that were relevant to a particular topic or a particular market so for instance let's say you were a Um, a car manufacturer, and you wanted to know, gee, how is my car doing versus somebody else's car? Uh, And what do people care about? Are they talking about, you know, how comfortable the seats are? Are they talking about how, you know, how much mileage they're getting? Whatever it happens to be. What are they actually talking about minute to minute? And how does what they're talking about predict what kinds of actions might happen at the car company? Like, for instance, if you have a lot of people talking about how the gas pedal sticks all the time on their Toyota Prius or whatever it happens to be. You know how likely is that to suddenly going to lead to um, a big a big problem in in their insurance claims? So uh, we created a company around that called Wise Window, and Wise Window uh, grew up from 2007 when we first started it. Uh, through to about 2012, when a large company, uh, KPMG, which is uh, one of the largest accounting and consulting firms in the world, acquired our technology, and so then I went to work with them, uh, trying to refine the technology down, um, helping their clients tackle uh, difficult analytics and and uh, problems that that require AI and machine learning, um, and um, and today, of course. There have been such huge uh, changes in AI, where things are so much more automated. So it's taken a lot of different forms. Not only can you track sentiment, which is what we were doing, um, in a lot more detail. Um, you can do things like automatically uh, detect people's voices or detect people's faces or automate fake videos that uh, or fake pictures that uh, that. Uh, uh, can be used for all sorts of nefarious things as well as good things. And uh, so the, the market for that has changed quite a bit, but it has some profound impact on us as humans to be able to act ethically and be able to apply some of these technologies in as ethical a manner as possible.
1: It's quite interesting what you bring up because I think at least when I speak with a lot of you know my friends and acquaintances about artificial intelligence, there is a lot of fear around that. You know, people are afraid that our world will be taken over by robots. Right. right. And, um so I, I think what you mention, you know, is is
0: extremely important. But you know, it's interesting, yeah. Maurice. The the people are afraid of AI because they think of it from all the science fiction that they see. Mm-hmm. They see, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. movies like Ex Machina and all these things where mm-hmm. robots go awry. But um, the bulk of AI work is actually not about creating artificial life or artificial anything. Mm-hmm. It's about what I call the avoidance of natural stupidity mm. as opposed to the creative creation of artificial intelligence. If you think about what's really going on out there, um, for, you know, millions of years, humans have been using their judgment and using whatever they can glean from the outside environment to make decisions. And so there's a lot of variability in the kind of decisions that people make. What AI is doing is trying to take all of the data, all of the information that has led to decisions in the past, kind of codify that in a way, and be able to make decisions more predictably for the future and basically say, oh, look, you know, instead of going, instead of having, you know, 75% of your of your um, decisions be based on your gut feel, why don't you look at what actually worked in the past and let's get a computer since there's so much data there let's get a computer to see what patterns were successful versus which patterns weren't successful and that's what that's really what is is running ai right mm-hmm. so you want to be able to say for instance hey here's a train or here's a, an airplane engine and it's acting in a particular way and the computers are recognizing that the sensors that are built into those machines are picking up patterns that have led to a failure. And so let's let everybody know early that, oh, you know what, this airplane engine is having trouble or before you actually you know, get into a crash or this this train wheel needs to be changed so we avoid a derailment. That's the kind of world that that I think AI will be largely in. The stuff that we think about with like Ultron or mm-hmm. commander data from, from uh, Star Trek Mm -hmm. is referred to as artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. Artificial general intelligence is probably 100 to 200 years into the future, if it happens. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of complexity to dealing with trying to mimic the the human brain and actually improve on it. Um, There's just a lot of permutations and combinations of millions of variables that interact with each other that... Unless you had significantly more powerful computers and significantly more powerful pattern recognition, um, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, this world, for instance, of um, quantum computing that yeah. people are are just now starting to implement in a very rudimentary way, 50 to 100 years from now, quantum computers will be, will be um, powerful enough to maybe start to deal with all of that complexity. In the meantime, it's, it's not gonna be, we, we don't have anything to worry about from Ultron yet.
1: That particular development around artificial intelligence—what will it do with uh, human beings? Is there a need for us to change in a in a big way, or or uh, will we have more free time? Um,
0: do we do more? Need to do more? What is your prediction there? This is a raging debate. Mm-hmm. What the question you're asking is is being asked by a lot of people, right? So there's the yeah. the economic impact. Of Artificial intelligence, and you know what people are saying is hey if if machines make us that much more productive, are we just going to be bored? Are we going to have nothing to do that the machines are going to do everything? By the way, I, I totally doubt that, but I'll give you a little framework to think about that. yeah, and the other question really kind of gets to the question of how much depth how much depth of knowledge will we acquire about ourselves that will then become quantified by a computer? Mm-hmm. And does it reduce our humanity, right? So let me just deal with that, that first one. So there's a, uh, writers writers vary on this. My, mm-hmm. my particular favorite framework is, is this. So picture the world of work, okay? You have, you have kind of two criteria or two characteristics of the world of work. One is how creative a license do you have in your job? So, you know, some people don't have any creativity in their job. They're told, hey, look, it's very procedural, you know, insurance claim adjuster, you know, in an accident. Okay, get this information, determine this, if it's that, pay them this, if it's not, you know, very, very little creative or, you know, uh, 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 wiggle room. On the other side, you know, you have people who are uh, who have a lot of a lot of wiggle room a lot of discretion and and uh, creativity like CEOs of companies um, you know think about think about a, a pr person who has to listen to what a newspaper reporter is asking or a journalist is asking and quickly kind of make up on the fly what the strategy and message is going to be right that's kind of a lot of wiggle room so you got people with high procedural low strategic or creative component, and you have the opposite, high high strategic, low procedural. And on the other criteria, you have how social are you? Is it a job that requires interacting with a lot of other people to get done? Or is it, peop- is it a job that, you know, um, you can kind of sit in a cave someplace, like, you know, an insurance adjuster, not ever talk to anybody, and, you know, And and get it done. Sorry, I don't mean to beat up on insurance adjusters, but um, (laughs) so if you think about that, right? You have kind of a high of each of those and a low of each of those. So, you know, it's going to hit different groups in different ways. For instance, a computer already with the um, with the algorithms they have for radiology is doing as good a job, if not better, than a human doctor. In actually detecting anomalies on MRIs and and uh, and uh, X-rays, right? So it's it's in a way kind of better at knowing whether you have cancer or not. But a computer is not going to tell the patient that they have cancer, and they're not going to not going to hold their hand and they're not going to say, "Hey, here's what you know, here's how you need to deal with it." A human is going to have to do that, right? And there's a lot of jobs, so that's a job that has high procedurality but high Um, high uh, uh, social interaction. Mm. So we call that the human veneer. They're going to be AI will help the human veneer side because it'll help make decisions better. On the flip side, you have people who um, like graphics artists. Today, you have an increasing creep of artificial intelligence providing tools to graphics artists, telling them what they should do, you know? Like, for instance, I'm looking at you right now. You've got your background blurred, right? Well, you know, an AI program will come up and send you a message if you were trying to fix that and say, would you like me to unblur it for you? That's a computer telling you that. Not And the human then says, okay, I'll use that tool to unblur or add light or whatever it happens to be. So this is, a, this is kind of the tools side. But you do have people that are going to be kind of in the, that zone where their jobs are going to be likely eliminated by AI. You know, getting back to um, let's take telemarketing instead of insurance because everybody hates telemarketers, right? So let's let's look at uh, let's look at telemarketing. It's already all robots. Humans. It's it's very procedural, right? Here, let's say a message. The respondent either says yes or no. If it's if they say no, hang up. Go to the next one. Entirely. Automatable, So there are going to be a lot of things like that that we used to do um, with humans that are just much more efficient to be done with AI. So that group of people we're going to have to, to deal with, right? The thing that we haven't figured out, and we won't be able to figure out until we get into it more, is what new stuff will come up what new and all this is what happens with technology right there's always something new some new endeavor that humans can do why because humans are really resourceful so that's that's kind of where i think the future of work yeah, is yeah. Uh, You want to talk about the more philosophical side about about humans? So for everybody listening, uh, I am a huge fan of a philosopher named Yuval Noah Harari, Mm -hmm. who is an Israeli philosopher who's written some great books. First one was Sapiens. Second one is called Homo Deus, Man is God. And the most recent one is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. But Homo Deus was particularly... uh, Caught me because the premise of it is this: that if you think back to like the 1600s when humanism really started to come up, right? And by the way, the reason I raise that is that CWS, as a charity, is a direct outgrowth of the humanism, you know, movement, right? Where be- people basically should be given the right to lead their lives in the most productive, happy way, right? Humans, at the end of the day. Humans have been looking for how to live forever, how to know everything, and how to be perpetually happy, right? Since the start, since the mid, since the Renaissance, right? That's been the driving goal. Um, And it's still a driving goal. And it's really kind of the driving goal of AI in a way, right? Because AI is just a reflection of the rest of life. So think about this. Here's what Harari brings out. It is very likely that within the next 50 years, probably, maybe maybe less, but I, I bet 50 is probably a decent number. Science, nanoscience will be perfected to the point where we will be able to inject into people millions of nanoparticles that run around in their body. And what would those nanoparticles do? well they would be they do kind of what your eye watch does today in a crude way right they'd be monitoring your physical and your your, your physical processes right your chemistry your electrics uh, you know your movement all of these kinds of things that's what that's what they're going to do okay great we we're going to love that why it's going to help us live forever we're going to find out that we have a problem, a health problem that needs to be fixed way earlier than we did before. And we'll be able to monitor people in real time. So people will accept that. So the AI side of this that is inevitable once that happens is that the world will create algorithms to detect what's really going on, right? An algorithm is just a a formula that says, here's a pattern that we're seeing, right? so they're going to be able to look at you know um what how you respond to things like you ate something how did it make you how did it you know what was the reaction for you it'll even look at things like emotions right which today we know very very little about we know a lot about brains but we know almost nothing about minds so it's going to start looking at things like spirituality it's going to start looking at things like Depression or you know mood swings. And eventually, and this is kind of getting down toward that artificial general intelligence thing, you're going to have algorithms that are going to be able to say, Oh, I see some chemical stuff going on in your body. I think you're about to have a depressive episode, or you are depressed at the moment. You need to go do such and such a thing. Well, how do we deal with ourselves today? Today. We've all been taught that we have or ought to have an authentic inner voice, right? That tells us, okay, here's what here's what you're really about. Here's the truth about you. This is what you really want to do, right? By the way, interestingly, that notion came out of the humanism movement of the 1600s, right? 15, 1600s. Before that, you didn't know yourself. Only God knew you, right? And so in, in a very real way... People have used this notion of humanism and the and the authentic inner voice as a way of replacing God in their lives, right? Because God was not really knowable. You're knowable. You've got your inner voice inside. So that's an interesting kind of spiritual question. Okay. So the question that Harari poses is this: when we get to the point where the where the AI algorithms and the pattern recognition that's built into your body as it's sensing everything knows you better than your inner voice what's going to happen to us you know what's going to happen to us by the way what happens if they network that information so that information isn't just available to you which it really can't be because it has to be available to everybody in order to do an accurate you have to get a lot of reads right you have to get a lot of data points about comparing you to other people in order to be able to be reliable about saying yeah I'm depressed or I'm ecstatic or whatever it is right so that's going to happen so if that big network that's driven by ai that understands what's happening to humans at this very very you know personal level and it's more reliable than your inner voices in saying this is what you're going through what does it mean for humanity? you know what does it mean to be human right to be to err is human to forgive is divine right but what that means is that error is part of humanity what happens if you suddenly become error free because you know everything very very interesting philosophical question and so that's the reason why he named his book homo deus right man as god Because what does God do? God knows everything, lives forever, is eternal, and is perpetually happy, never unhappy. Well, maybe. But that's the point, right? Suddenly, man starts to approach God-like powers, the way we've imbued God and defined God, right? Who knows what, you know, if there is truly, you know, some, some other entity out there that created us that we that is unknowable, which I personally believe is my personal credo. Who knows what other powers God might have? But this is what humans have mm. imbued to God. So um, it's a very interesting question. So I want to, from my own personal mission, Right in life is I think that what we're talking about is inevitable from a technology mm-hmm. point of view. Mm-hmm. there's no you can't really control it. I mean, you you know, maybe, but you can't you can't really control what is a gigantic worldwide phenomenon. I just want to make sure it gets steered in the right way, mm-hmm. right that and that people, people can, um, you know, people can figure out how to use it productively in their lives. Mm-hmm. to create opportunity. You know, one of the big problems that I'm worried about in my life and I know we're yeah, probably right. segueing into the questions that mm-hmm. that you typically like to ask on your podcast and I salute mm-hmm. you for doing that. But is kind of like what keeps you up at night? What 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 are the causes that you care about? Yeah. You know, from from my point of view, it's a, society has always progressed by providing opportunity to people. What I see is happening right now is such a concentration of wealth, such a huge inequality of income and opportunity that I'm very concerned about that. And so I want to find ways of leveling the opportunity playing field. I can't level the achievement playing field, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, not everybody has the same set of skills. Not everybody applies the same set set of skills in the same way. There are winners. There are losers. There are people who are going to do better than others. But my main concern is making sure that the opportunity for people to try Mm -hmm. and the opportunity for people to at least get on the, the, the basketball court to see if they can sink a three pointer is there. And I think that's a global issue, right? Because the stuff that we're talking about with AI and you know, this is not just a rich guy thing. Every country is involved in some degree with trying to bring their population up the up the curve. I mean, it's kind of tough if you're living in Syria and the world has bombed your entire life and you have you're dealing with absolute subsistence. This is, you know, kind of hard to think about, gee, what kind of AI algorithm am I going to write? But I want people, you know, once they can get past that, once a CWS can come in and help bring them from zero to one, right, and make their lives sustainable, I want them to be able to have the opportunity to dig in, learn more, and potentially succeed.
1: Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Marshall. You know, for for me, when I'm listening to you explaining about artificial intelligence and where this uh, might go, it it reminds me also on on discussions that I have with with many of my guests, and also when I walk, is about spirituality. It's about religion. uh, You know, what do you believe in? What do you think we are on this earth? um, And then, and and you will. You might like this question that I'm going to ask because you teach for a lot of young people. So you you interact a lot with this next generation. Yeah, what what do you see happening among the younger generation with regard to uh, religion and spirituality? Because I, you know, some of my guests have said, well, they are different, this next generation. Others say, no, it is very similar. Uh, maybe, you know, them, their, their urge uh, to access institutionalized religion is, is different
0: than in the past. What do you see in your uh, community? You know, that's a great question. The, the students that I work with, to a person actually, are looking for a level of meaning in their lives, right? They don't know really where to get it, but they're looking for a level of meaning. So like the first thing that I hear from students is, look, I don't want to be tied up in my job And be a careerist to the same degree that that people in my generation would be, or for people in your generation would be. I wanna make sure that I always carve out some work life balance. Well, why is that? Hmm. Because they're looking for something in their non work life that has some genuine meaning to them, right? The, The issue that I have is that many people are turning to things that have no meaning that, uh, or have, I worry about, you know, I worry about people getting sucked into online gaming, I get worried that people were getting sucked into the Tower of Babel that defines the social media environment, um, kind of wor- worried that they're getting sucked into a, a fake virtual world, as opposed to really sitting down and thinking, you know, what does humanity need? You know, some people are getting are getting uh, enthralled with religion. That that is something that they write personally. I think there's a big difference between spirituality and religion. And so I see that um, uh, uh, I see that some people uh, are embracing formal religion in and formal religious practices as a way of creating community for themselves which is good by the way i think that's fine it's a it's it's nice to have community right it's nice to, to not be alone whereas i see others really digging a little more deeply and asking themselves the questions um, about life about like you know why are we here where are we going i think that the is that is that latter more spiritual what you would call spiritual yeah the latter or... i would say is a little is what i would label as spiritual okay one of the things that i think is triggering it for those people who do take it up, is climate change? Mm. Um, there's a ton of data out there about climate. We know the climate is changing. We know that humans probably have some, you know, major role to have played in on that, but mm-hmm. we really don't know, right? But it. But regardless of the, and, and we also don't know whether or not anything that we choose to fix about it will have more a worse effect. The problem to begin with. So it's it's a tough scientific problem. But from a spiritual question point of view, the useful element of it has been that people ask the question, what do we want the planet to be? You know, what, what is the role of humans on the planet? You know, we have evolved, interestingly, this is what uh, Harari's first book called Sapiens is all about, evolved as the dominant species on the, uh, uh, on the planet by virtue of our ability to collaborate, right? And and get things done in teams, that's as opposed to solo actors, right? That's kind of one of the hallmarks of why humans have been so successful. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you start thinking about the more complex things that they've collaborated on, you know, we can, we can see some of the negative things. So the question becomes, you know, what, is, what is the role for humans here? is it to be stewards on behalf of all the rest of the species is it to not be stewards but to be more sharing you know uh, is it to enhance other species so that they get a they get a, a break right is it to basically say no look it's all about humans and and um we're gonna since we're the dominant species, we're gonna until we lose that, we're gonna we're gonna do whatever the hell we want to do and and uh and design the planet the way we want to design it. And if that design happens in a way that ruins the environment for everybody and we commit kind of ecological suicide, which is what the real alarmists, the climate climate alarmists are talking about right? I don't know that I buy it to tell you the truth as an immediate from an immediate threat point of view, but I definitely see that it is a critical issue that we need to wrap our minds around. Mm-hmm. But you know, is, is that our right? Do we really have the right to ruin it for the a for the rest of us humans, and for the rest of us from a total totality of, of life, not just human life? So that leads you, if you ask that question, that leads you down the road of spirituality and ethics, right? Yeah. What should be done? Is this a test by God to see whether or not we'll blow it, you know, and that there's some sentient sentient force that's actually watching us, which we all kind of would love to believe that there's kind of like a, you know, an unseen babysitter on the on the world and that somehow she will come out of the woodwork and say, no, 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 you can't do that. So, you know, have a timeout. I don't know that I personally subscribe to that, but, you know, the the point is that just simply asking the questions is a healthy discussion for spirituality for people. And I see that happening among, among young people because they're worried. They're worried that, like, what does this all mean?
1: No, thanks for that. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's yeah, that's really interesting for me to, to to listen to you, and especially because you have so much interaction with with a lot of students about this. Um, so when I listen carefully to you, I I hear you um, you know mentioning a lot of worries you see happening with this world. Um, where do you still see hope? Well, I see hope
0: actually quite a bit. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a hopeless person. And and the reason is that um, I really believe in the creativity of human beings. What I notice when I, with my students and what I've noticed out throughout my career is a creative solution always presents itself, you know, whether it's in crisis or not, right? Mm -hmm. You put people together and you say, okay, start thinking about how to solve this problem. And you get creative solutions, hmm. you know, it's, and, and it's oftentimes solutions that you wouldn't have expected. Right. And those solutions aren't unidimensional. They come from multiple sources, right. They hmm. come from uh, uh, thought experiments that just completely change the way you put together the fundamental structure of the world, all the way up to applications for, and new technologies that, um, that people wouldn't have thought about before. Mm-hmm. And then they, and it comes from, it only comes from ping-ponging ideas of others in a social way. I mean, take quantum computing as an mm-hmm. example, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Quantum computing came about because of the intersection of two basic ideas, right? Computing and quantum physics. Somebody, that those two things didn't necessarily go together, mm-hmm. um, and, and it now will present itself in, in in the application of that in ways that have nothing to do with any of those, right? It'll have mm-hmm. it'll be something like, oh, here's how we do a much better job of uh, recognizing uh, uh, climate disasters before they become disasters. I'm hopeful about that. Mm-hmm. I think that if you can get, and that's why I don't worry about mass unemployment and um, uh, things like that with AI. Mm-hmm. Even though that's kind of the the dystopic view, right? Of, yeah. uh, that's led us led us down some science fiction roads. I, I don't buy that. I think humans are going to be more creative than that, and we may have crises that will precipitate creativity. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that uh, we will lose our creativity unless we beat opportunity out of people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, which could happen in a world. You know, that one of the issues I have with cancel culture as an example, is the negative side of cancel culture, is that the people who get canceled stop participating. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you may not want nutcases, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that you've canceled to participate in the way that, but you know what? The, just the presentation of an antithesis, right, of an Mm -hmm. opposite point of view is what creates the opportunity for a synthesis. So that's the thing that I worry about is that if everybody starts to do groupthink, and everybody starts to just focus on, on um, confirmation bias to only listen to the things that confirm their hypotheses, Mm -hmm. we'll lose creativity as a species. I think that's, that's the part that I don't really like. And so, you know, um, if you were to ask me, well, what would I go do a hundred mile walk for? I would, I would, I would go do a 100-mile walk for the old Beatles song come together. We can't continue to have um mutually assured destruction of ideas on each, uh-huh. on each side. We can't have this polarization as detestable as some of the uh-huh. as some of the ideas are to people on each side of the of the the cancel culture thing uh are. We can't insulate ourselves into a world where there's only quote, right thinking. Because if there's not Mm -hmm. wrong thinking, you'll never end up with new thinking.
1: You noted that CWS is celebrating 75 years of existence. And that is also a time where we reflect on, you know, how did we do? And and an important one is around racial justice issues, you know. Um, So, uh, questions that we are asking: How did we do in the past? How are we doing now? What should we do in the future? The question that I have for you, though, is: If you look at the NGO sector as a whole, and it's difficult to to generalize, I know that, but I'm going to ask you anyway. um, How do you think the NGO sector did? And is doing around uh, the issue of racial justice
0: that's a very it's a very good question. Um, I'm not sure that it's had a, um, a measurable impact. I think that the if you take NGOs to also include people who are advocates for racial justice, mm. um I think the the success that one can point to is elevating the discussion. And making people aware that there is racial injustice, hmm. right of, of people who never really thought about it before, who never thought that there 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 was, right? They might have been living in their own own bubble. Obviously, people who are on the receiving end of racial injustice experienced it every day. So now it what's what's probably the measurable part of it is that I think people do recognize how unjust the world has been. And This gets back to my point about opportunity, by the way, which is, you know, opportunity has not been presented because of racial injustices. The problem is that um, in order to fix racial injustice, you need to fix the inside of people's heads, not just what they speak. And that's not something that is a short-term fix. That's, and it's also not something that in my mind is even Addressable through things like curriculum in universities or in in high schools. you know, yeah, okay. yes, it's important to understand and highlight and be sensitive to these to these things. But the real fix has to come through people interaction interacting positively with people across the spectrum, whether it's economic inequality, racial inequality, um ethnic inequality, the only way this problem is going to get solved is person to person. So if if NGOs can facilitate interaction with people, and by the way, this is where I I applaud CWS, right? By by being, you know, CWS's role, in addition to being able to help people in their home countries get through crises, you know, one of the things that CWS has done is be able to um, help people who come here socially integrate with other people who are in america well that that breaks down stereotypes that breaks down that that helps with taking away racial injustice right some of the most successful people in our culture have been people who have come in as refugees and who have been who have been helped by ngos like cws so that's to me that's where the the game is, right? The game is in the streets, not so much even in the classrooms, right? Mm. So I think that that's how, you're going to, that's how you're going to change people's minds who have what we would think of as negative preconceived notions.
1: Marshall, you know you, you are, you know, I, I always send my questions uh, in advance so that people can prepare a little bit. So you answered quite a lot of my questions already. I've, I have uh, one more for you, um, and that is, what is your message invitation or question for the listeners?
0: Great question. Great question. What can you do in your personal life to reach out and listen with genuine interest to an alternative point of view? Who would you listen to? How would you do that? And how would you integrate what people are, are people's points of view that may be divergent from yours? how would you analyze and integrate that into your life? I think that's the question people should be asking themselves.
1: Great. That's a great, great uh, question to the listeners. I'd like to thank you. You know, it's, it's, we know each other for quite a long time and, and, and I, you know, every time we have a conversation, I, Uh, continue to learn and and this is this was really an interesting conversation we had we did not uh, have before so so it was great Uh,
0: thank you so much for your willingness to be part of of uh, my podcast
1: oh it's a pleasure
0: Um, Maurice and I just have to say thank you so much for doing your podcast you're doing such a service to get this format out there of, of questions from people across the spectrum so thank you for 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 doing it and thank you for your friendship across all of these years yeah no it's absolutely mutual and
1: you know some of the the things you've talked about we'll make sure that people can find it in the in the notes of the podcast make links available you know that they can go to the website of your university you know the the social media handles that you might have uh, we'll make sure that uh, people can continue to follow you now because uh, i know that that you know, what you have shared uh, will have created curiosity about, you know, what you do and and who you
0: are. Well, and not to not to push my own podcast, but oh, yes, yes, of course, I do a uh, every two weeks, I do a Mm -hmm. podcast that takes a different point of view on topics that Mm -hmm. just really does provide hopes to provide independent point of points of view that don't seem to be getting through. Hmm. called the Feudal Future Podcast. Feudal like feudalism, F-E-U-D-A-L. You can find it on Apple, YouTube, Stitcher, wherever it is you find your podcast. My partner, Joel Kotkin, who is uh, known as America's demographer, is my partner in this. And um, we have fabulous, fabulous guests. We hope to have you, Maurice, as a guest one of these days. We actually had John McCullough, who was the former CEO of, uh, of uh, CWS, uh, we want to have uh, uh, the team at CWS that is dealing with uh, resettling Afghan refugees come in and talk to us about what that's like. But it presents an alternative point of view. So uh, hopefully, hopefully your listeners will find some value in that. Yeah, we'll make sure that, that it's mentioned in the, in the notes and that they can find your, your podcast.
1: So uh, thanks a lot, uh, Marshall.
0: Thanks, Maurice. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.
1: for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram i just finished the 10th 100 mile walk and i really encourage you to check out our website 100mile.org to see how you can still contribute to this campaign thank you